0: Friends, I want to uh, invite you to come back in and take your seats. We'll continue with our teaching time together this morning. Uh, My name's Brad, part of the teaching leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, about two decades ago, when my wife, uh, Meg, and I were dating, we took a trip down to Seattle one weekend, and we attended a church called Mount Zion Baptist Church. Now, If you've never been to a church that is a part of the African-American tradition, uh, you have to go at some point. So the pastor at the time, uh, Dr. Samuel McKinney, I mean, the man stood shoulder to shoulder with Martin Luther King Jr. He was a part of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, and he preached in the long and storied tradition that African-American preachers do. He was an orator. And I can still remember, over 20 years later, the sermon that he preached that Sunday. And his pastoral concern that morning focused on the fact that there were some members of his congregation, it had come to his attention, were getting led astray by and being influenced by what he called a name-it-and-claim-it theology. And he was worried that people in his congregation were getting sucked into this kind of thinking. And researcher and author and sociologist Kate Bowler describes a prosperity-focused gospel that was more concerned with economic blessing than spiritual well-being. And Dr. McKinney was having none of this. He wanted to be clear that this had no place in his church. And so he related the story of a woman who came in to speak with him. And this woman uh, was unemployed, and she was caught up with this new fervor of spirituality, and she wanted to be blessed. And so she came into his office, and she said, oh, pastor, pastor, I've just heard the most wonderful news that I can just simply reach out into the heavenly realms and I can claim for my own that which Jesus has purchased for me already. I can just, what Jesus wants me to possess. And so I told Jesus, Jesus, I need a new car. And uh, Jesus told me that uh, that was good with him. And so I reached into the heavenly realms and I've just named and claimed a new BMW pastor. And it has yet to arrive, but I'm just so excited and delighted about this. And the Reverend Dr. Samuel B. McKinney paused and he leaned over his pulpit and he looked his congregation in the eye and he said, I told her, sister, you better go out and claim yourself a job before you go around claiming BMWs. <laughs> and the whole place, 2,000 people, all just exploded to their feet with cheers and applause and just an absolute kind of cacophony of excitement for that. But I still remember that because we're starting a teaching series this morning and we're going to take a look at some of the the erroneous ways of thinking that have snuck in to some of our practice here in North America and modern church culture. And these are phrases, they're ways of thinking. They, some of them are quite popular in North America in particular, but many of them are actually incongruent or some in just direct opposition to what the Bible actually teaches. So our May and June series here at Jericho is entitled, The Bible Doesn't Say That. And we're going to start this morning by poking around in this, what's sometimes known as the prosperity gospel or the word faith movement. And if you're not familiar with it, let me paint just a little bit of a picture for you. There are some individuals and groups in this particular branch of Christendom that believe that faith in Jesus will entail or bring into your life blessings uh, and favor. Often these are financial in nature for them. And their picture of an obedient Christian life is one full of wealth, one full of happiness, one full of relative ease. And oftentimes, you'll find these people on TV because this stuff actually sells really, really well in our North American culture. But we also have the Canadian office of one of those ministries right here in Walnut Grove. And so it's not just out there. We have to ask and think a little bit uh, about this because it can be very easy for us to mock or caricature an unemployed woman naming and claiming her BMW without going around and claiming herself a job. But we also have to explore, are there areas of this kind of thinking that influence us and the way that we talk and think and pray, either as individuals or as a community? So let's just start by looking at some of the biblical texts that help us understand what is it that underlies this kind of thinking? So here at Jericho, we've just finished up a teaching series on uh, the Song of Songs, which is part of the wisdom literature tradition. And one of the things that you can find quite readily in books like Proverbs or Psalms or Ecclesiastes, which are all part of that tradition in the Old Testament, is short little pithy phrases that encompass uh, a line of thinking or a truth. And sometimes these phrases can feel a little bit like a formula. Do X and Y will happen? And so the question that we have to wrestle with is, is there a formula for God's blessing? Because those that are part of this tradition would say most certainly yes, and they would give you chapter and verse for it. So our fellow Christians in that tradition would point to verses like Proverbs 13, verse 21, where the author says, trouble chases sinners... But blessings reward the righteous. Or they'd go to a place like Deuteronomy chapter 5. And after the giving of the Ten Commandments, then Moses says to the people, a bit of a summary statement, listen, you need to stay on the path that the Lord has commanded you to follow. Then you will live long and prosperous lives in the land that you are about to enter and occupy live long and prosper. It's just biblical, isn't it? (laughs) But does the Bible teach that? Does the Bible teach a kind of sort of biblical karma? If you lead an unrighteous life, you'll suffer, which then if you're suffering, uh, people in the prosperity gospel tradition would say, well, that's an indication that God's blessing isn't on your life, or it's been removed from your life. Or is the inverse true? Living a righteous life, does that always lead to prosperity? Which means that clearly if you're prospering, God's blessing is on you. This connection between sin and suffering and righteousness and prosperity exists even in the minds of Jesus' disciples. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 9, or John chapter 9 rather, they come across a man who is sick. He's, he is blind. And Jesus' disciples, first question out of their mouths to Jesus is, "Um, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he's in the state that he's in now? Because clearly, he's something. Somebody did something. And that's why he exists in the status that he is. And so this question between sort of a righteous life and blessing and an unrighteous life and suffering does exist and i want to acknowledge as we move into the discussion today that this is a bit of a complicated question to address and we're not well served always by reductionistic formulas like the two that you see on the screen there and we're not going to be able to actually focus on both sides of the question today Uh, And so if you want to learn more about that delinking of sin and suffering, we did in 2014 a sermon series in Ecclesiastes, and then last year we did a series in Isaiah. And so if you go on to Jericho's website, there's a search tool in there. If you just put in the word suffering, it'll come up with a number of sermons that could be helpful for you if that's a question that bubbles to the surface uh, in your mind. But we want to look at the flip side of that, the other half of that conversation, and figure out, is there some type of connectivity between this righteous life and prosperity that would be suggested? So when we take a step back from the formulas and the reductions, we have to deal with a few other parts of the Bible with regards to this line of thinking. Because not all of the Bible outside of the wisdom tradition is easily reduced to that kind of simplistic formulas that are neat and tidy for success, wealth, and blessing. Take the life of Job, for example. The text actually begins in Job chapter 1 by setting up a very different picture for us. Job's, in chapter 1, verse 1, is a blameless and upright man. He fears God, he shuns evil. And yet, then, immediately following this, we have this incredible story of Job's life and all of the things that happened to him. Job's a wealthy person. Uh, From all that we know, he's faithful to his wife. He's kind to the poor. He's generous with his workers. And yet, this series of calamities befalls him, and he loses everything. And we find Job just a few short chapters later in chapter 4 sitting outside of the city in a heap of ashes. And he's grieving and he's weeping and he's trying to sift through the rubble of his life and his existence. And his friends come to him and they say the exact same thing. Well, Job, what did you do wrong? I mean, the Bible says you reap what you sow, and what we see that you've been reaping means there must be some sowing that we don't know about of really bad stuff. One of his friends in Job 4.8 says, my experience just in the world out there, Job says that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil are going to harvest the same, and that's what we're harvesting, so where did you plant? What's going on? You must have done something to bring this kind of trouble into your life. But at the end of the book of Job, after all of the questions and wrestling and dynamics, Job speaks, God speaks rather, and answers Job's questions, not always to our satisfaction as to why this is happening to him. And essentially, God says, you know what, gang, you got to be careful using the hashtag blessed. That's up to me. You don't get to sort of pull some cosmic lever that guarantees your best life now. Be aware and attentive of how you speak about blessing and how you speak about suffering. Job's experience and conversation with God ends up upending Some of the simplistic formulaic kind of thinking that can come if we just simply pull a few verses from Proverbs or Psalms about how obedience always equals blessing. Job was obedient, and it did not result in blessing for him in his life and experience. There was incredible tragedy and sorrow. Then there's the experience uh, in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul. Paul is one of the earliest Christian missionaries. He crosses cultural barriers with the message of the good news of Jesus. He has a dynamic ministry, preaching and teaching uh, to people who don't have a background in the uh, understanding of who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And Paul experiences a dramatic conversion himself personally that involves miraculous uh, blindness, and then healing from that. And so he becomes passionate about declaring to others the message of the good news. And he sets out on a series of missionary adventures and journeys in the book of Acts. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts uh, chapter 16 or on your devices. And in the book of Acts, there's a few of his journeys that get recorded. In Acts 16, this is the second one that he goes out on. And Paul in Acts chapter 16 is traveling with a ministry partner named Silas. And in verse 6, they have this plan that they've hatched. They've told people, hey, we're going to go up north to this A place called Bithynia. We're gonna do ministry up there. It's gonna be awesome. We're gonna see some of the same things that God has led us to. But it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 7, that as they headed north, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to that place. They were prevented for some reason, which we don't know. We don't know why. We don't know how they interpreted that. Maybe they missed their ferry. Maybe they just didn't have a piece in their heart about it. We don't know. What we do know is that door or that location for ministry for them was closed. They were prevented from going there, from that ministry that they had planned. But then Paul in chapter 16 verse 10 has a vision and he sees in his vision uh, a person from another area in Macedonia, calling out to him and saying, would you come over and help us here? And so he interprets this to be God's leading and guidance, that one door is closed and another door for them has opened. So he and Silas redirect, and they head over there. They change their plans, and they end up in a city called Philippi. And early newsletter reports from Paul the missionary in the city of Philippi are really great. Like they're doing spectacular ministry there. They go down to uh, the river where there's a place where they've heard the people who are spiritual gather for prayer. And they go there, and they begin preaching, and people start coming to saving faith. Some of the prominent people, Lydia, a businesswoman in the city, great response to the message of the gospel. She invites them to stay at her house. Some of their ministry expenses are covered. This fantastic newsletter that he's sending back home to his supporters about what's happening in the city of Philippi. And then, on top of that, As we go on, we see that uh, they begin to go into the city of Philippi and begin to have ministry encounters, and there is a young woman who is demonized, and as a result of this demon, she actually has power, spiritual power and authority, and there's people who are making money off of this, and Paul and Silas uh, are able to meet her need and able to say and conduct a deliverance and healing ministry there and this young girl who's been trafficked she's been taken from we don't know where and she's she's an economic engine for these people paul says listen in the name of jesus this demon is is gone and it leaves her and so paul takes this bold step and casts this demon out of this young girl an amazing opportunity for him to stand and speak in the public square about the transforming work that Jesus does in a person's life. I mean, if I was Paul, I'd be doing up the evangelistic campaign posters in the social media posts. You remember her from the marketplace. Come hear the testimony of the girl released from the powers of darkness. Hashtag revival in Philippi. Like this is a great ministry presence that they have early on in the city. Except, the challenge is, it doesn't quite keep going that way. As a direct result to obedience to this vision that God gave him for the city of Philippi, as a direct result to the obedience that Paul and Silas took to preach the gospel to people, as a direct result of the obedience that Paul exercised spiritual authority to cast out that demon, Paul and Silas do not wind up blessed, they end up dragged into the public market, stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, and then thrown in jail. They're in the inner dungeon with their feet in stocks as a direct consequence of their obedience to what God put in front of them. And so here's my worry about those who um, walk into a prosperity gospel. See, a prosperity gospel oftentimes gives great hope to those who are coming to Christ. But the shadow side of it is that it can be only part of the story. And so when your circumstances are not moving up and to the right, and things do not go well for you, and you are not shiny and hashtag blessed, it can be easy to lose your way. Sitting in that dungeon, if Paul and Silas clung to the notion that obedience automatically equals blessing, it could have shipwrecked their faith. You see, if you believe that if you are a good Christian, quote-unquote, Like, you do all the stuff that whatever a good Christian is supposed to do. You're up for a gold star for church attendance. You read your Bible, pray every day. Well, maybe, you know, five out of seven. Or if you tithe to your church, you give money to the poor. Like, you, you do all the right things in your mind. And you believe that by doing all of those actions, that then somehow God owes you blessing that puts you in a very precarious place. Because when trouble comes, when hardship, when adversity enters your world, you don't have a category to put those into. See, Paul did everything right in this instance. I mean, he didn't try to push through and keep traveling north when God prevented him from doing so. He responded When he had a dream and divine vision, he he didn't just go, oh, that was bad pizza. I'm going to give up on that one. We'll just do whatever I want to do. He responded in faith when God put the opportunity in front of him to confront demonic powers. He's experiencing all of this ministry fruit, and then he wasn't. And then he was in jail. And it can be difficult because if Paul was not secure in his theology, he might have felt a sense of shame or disillusionment for hard times. Sometimes when sickness comes in to your world, when things take a turn, I've had people sit with me and say, well, I must not be a very good Christian if I'm going through this. Paul might have said, man, I must have misunderstood that vision It sure didn't have a picture of me here in jail. Yet Paul actually understood something profound that you and I would do well to learn. Because years later, he writes back to this little church in the city of Philippi, the city where he's jailed. And if you follow his story through to the end of uh, chapter 16 in Acts, he gets jailed and then he actually gets run out of town. So the ministry trip doesn't end particularly successfully for him. Other than Lydia and the slave girl, his ministry low points in Philippi stand out a lot more than his high points. And yet Paul writes back to this beautiful church in Philippi in the book of Philippians. So turn over there with me. And I want to look at a few verses in chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Paul says... To the Philippians, you know, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing, or I know how to live with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So we learn a few things about Paul's understanding of obedience and blessing from this instruction that he gives. Let me suggest just three things briefly for us. The first thing Paul points out is that contentment is learned not earned. Being content is a skill set. It's not something that comes automatically when there are no storm clouds in your lives. I know of people who have every material comfort in the world that you and I could imagine, and yet they are not content. They are miserable. And I know friends in Africa, in Guatemala, and locally who are economically impoverished, and they are some of the happiest people. They're filled with a genuine joy that transcends their circumstances. They've learned to be content. See, contentment is learned. It's a skill. Part of being blessed is blessed with contentment, and contentment is a skill that you and I can develop. We don't have to wait for our circumstances to change in order to work at that. See, sometimes we tell ourselves, oh, when I get that new job, then I'll be content. Well, when when life changes and it doesn't quite seem so hard, then I'll be able to experience some contentment. Paul says, you know what, gang? I've been through it all. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been jailed. I've been run out of town. I've also dined with kings and palaces. I've, the whole gamut of human experience has been mine on the economic front. And I can tell you, you've got to work at being content no matter where you find yourself. Paul says, I've been in the place where I've been in a jail cell and I've learned to be content even there. Contentment is learned, not earned. The second thing Paul points out to us is that situational outcomes should not dictate whether obedience to what God put in front of you is the right call. Sometimes we take a step of obedience and faith, and if things get worse instead of better, we think to ourselves, ah, I must have misread it, must not have been God. I was would, I would just stupid to step out in that way. Why did I do that? I'm not going to make that mistake again. I mean, I gave my money away to that cause that the person was on about. I felt God asking me to do it. I checked it with a discerning community around me, and then I did it. And look, now I don't have that money anymore. That was dumb. My situation's worse. It's not better. Well, that's the last time I listen to Jesus and be generous with anything I have. But see, friends, look at verse 12 of chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul says, I've had a full stomach, and I've had an empty stomach. How my belly is feeling is not and should not be a barometer of blessing. I've lived on almost nothing, and I've lived with plenty. And so Paul says, I choose not to use my present circumstances as the measure of whether or not obedience was the right decision. This is one of the biggest challenges with the prosperity gospel. When anyone says, well, if you're healthy and wealthy, that must be an evidence of God's blessing in your life, it simply cannot always be true. Because if that was true, then Paul, sitting in the jail in Philippi, And even Jesus, who said, listen, foxes have holes, birds have nests, I don't even have a house where I can lay my head down, let alone a BMW to call my own, would be hashtag not-blessed. But see, friends, our situations that we find ourselves in, the outcomes of decisions we make of obedience should not dictate whether obedience was the right call. Obedience is always the right call. See, the reason that our circumstances are a poor barometer of this is that obedience to God's call does not automatically guarantee success. That's the third thing that Paul points out in verse 13. You see, sometimes I hear people use Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And basically what I hear them saying is, with Jesus on my team, whatever I put my hand to is going to be awesome. I can do anything with me and team Jesus. And see, what Paul is saying here, if you read the whole of chapter 4, is he's actually saying quite the opposite. He's saying, I can handle both the times when I feel like success, and I can also handle the times when I feel like failure, because Christ gives me strength, not Everything I did was awesome because I'm on Team Jesus and Jesus is with me. Obedience to God's call does not automatically guarantee success. And so the question of does God's favor always accompany obedience? I have got a series t-shirt for this, so just be clear that you're... mm. For those of you listening to the audio, the pastor is currently undressing on stage. (laughs) The series t-shirt is a picture of Jesus saying, I never said that. (laughs) Does God's favor always accompany obedience? Jesus never said that. Paul didn't say that. The Bible does not say that obedience always leads to blessing. Paul's obedience to God's open door landed him in jail and run out of the city. Yet he persisted in walking the road of obedience. It can be a rugged road. See, sometimes as Christians, we use metaphors or language to try and help us understand things. And sometimes Christians will use the metaphor of or the language of open doors or closed doors to describe things. And sometimes we get a little bit fuzzy or lazy in the way in which we use that language. And so sometimes we think if God has, if their door is open, it must be that God has opened it. And then on the other side of that door, if I just walk through it, it's just nothing but divine blessing for me because God's opened the door. And so it's just my, God's part is to open it, my part's to walk through it. And then God's blessing and favor and good things will happen. But again, using Paul's experience in Acts chapter 16 and his reflection in Philippians 4, it might be more helpful to say in terms of open doors and closed doors, sometimes, yes, an open door means just keep going in that direction. But sometimes walking through that open door actually means that things will get a whole lot harder and a whole lot messier for you. But it still might be an act of obedience. And it doesn't mean don't walk through it. So what about you? What about us? How do we actually take some of these truths and put them into practice in our lives? Well, the first thing would be a question maybe for you to reflect on. And that is, is there an act of obedience that God is inviting you to take? And see, some of you are scared to take a step of obedience because you like to plan and you like to be able to see around the corner and you want to know what's coming and you like to know if it's going to quote-unquote work out for you and you hesitate in taking a step of obedience sometimes because you don't have it all figured out and so until you have the full plan or the full picture, you hold back. To some of you this morning... God might simply be saying, you need to trust me. All I have asked of you is obedience. I'm not going to give you every step of GPS turns along the pathway. I'm just asking you to step through that door. I'm only asking you to take a step of obedience. And God's saying to you, trust me. Uh, Do you trust me in the darkness? I'm going to be with you. Today might be your day to move and take that step of obedience. Maybe you need to send off that application to the short-term mission team. Maybe you need to reorganize your summer schedule so you can serve at camp. Maybe you need to put that check in the mail to the mission agency. I don't know what it is that's the act of obedience that God has put in front of you to do. But the second part of that is making sure that you count the cost of obedience. See, sometimes you might know that God's asking you to speak the truth in love into a relationship. And you say, okay, God, I'm going to do it. And you speak the truth in love, and the relationship disintegrates and ruptures. Or you might take a step out of faith in your finances, and then you look at it the next month and think, I'm not sure if we're going to come up short on this. But if you know that you said yes to a divine invitation, and you process that with people that you know and trust and allow them to speak into that, don't let what follows circumstantially cause you to doubt that decision. Obedience is always the right call. See, when when Meg and I and a team of people planted Jericho Ridge 13 years ago, we couldn't see flat far into the future. But we had a shared and collective sense of call to reach Willoughby and the surrounding area with the message of the good news of Jesus. And that has not meant that it has always been easy. And so when you walk out in obedience, sometimes it gets really messy and hard. But obedience is always the right call to make. Now, one of the things that um, my friends who are adherents to the prosperity type gospel sometimes frustrate me with is their simplicity. But one of the things that the great gifts that they bring to us is the gift of faith. You see, people that uh, live in this world tend to just follow Jesus, keep focused on what the Spirit is leading them, and, and sometimes they're willing to take steps of obedience that we as careful, cautious Canadians go, I don't know if I would do that. That seems a little bit radical. Because we err on the side of caution and prudence. Whereas some of our friends in the global south might err on the side of radically responsive and obedient faith. Sometimes when we're in Africa, I listen to people pray, and I'm like, ooh, that is a lot to ask Jesus for right there. I am not 100% sure about that. But they press in, and they ask God for more and bigger things more often. And you know what? Sometimes God actually grants them the things that they ask for. And so the challenge for me when I bump up against this is to put aside some of my skepticism and actually to receive the gift that's being offered to strengthen and stretch my faith. Not in a formulaic way, but in a way that is just saying, God, would I be open to asking you for bolder and bigger things? And so a challenge for you today might be to just think, what are you asking God for today? Sometimes when we, when we think about, okay, what are the things that I'm praying about regularly? If you looked real hard at that, you might come to the conclusion that you say, well, I'm kind of asking God for only like 5% more than what I could accomplish on my own. So I'll just work as hard as I can at that, and then I just need a little bit of Jesus dust to kind of get over the hump on that one. That's not radical faith. That's just sort of an identified problem and a gap and trying to get Jesus to solve something for you. Some of you might need to actually increase your ask and be more bold in your faith. The scripture also says you have not because you ask not. And I wonder if sometimes for us as individuals and then also for us collectively at Jericho, God's just waiting and saying, I would love for you to ask me for bolder and greater things. But you're too timid in your prayers because you're kind of worried that maybe I might not show up. What are we asking God for today? Some of you are also walking through some very dark and difficult times. And I want to just remind you today that because you are in that place does not mean that God has removed his favor and his presence from you. In the midst of that Philippian jail that night in Acts 16, we hear Paul and Silas, and their solution to their challenge is to break out in joyful hymns of thanksgiving and praise, declaring the goodness of God, declaring the power of God, asking and inviting God to do incredibly abundantly more than they could ask or think or imagine. That's one reason why when we get together, we, we spend time in worship in song, because not because it has some magical quality to it, but because it actually stretches challenge as our faith. That's why praying together as a community is powerful because sometimes some of us come into the environment and we just say, I don't have the strength to believe God for that but maybe someone else that links their arm with you will put their hand on your shoulder and pray and ask God to stir up faith when you just don't have the strength. That's why every week we have a prayer team available for you. So I'm gonna ask our prayer team to go to the sides and the back for this morning, and they would be privileged to pray with you. Katie's on that team. Gary and Betty are on that team. Any of our staff would be available to you. Meg and I would be available to you. I'm gonna ask Caitlin and the team to come up and lead us in three songs of response. I want to just remind us to fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that God is with you, and God cares for you. And it may not always mean that when you obey God, radical blessings flow into your life, but there's a blessing that comes from obedience and exercising faith. And so let's pray together. And God, I want uh, to, to see you move in my life, in my heart, in our city, in this church, in, in, the, in the people and projects that we're connected with around the globe in ways that are exceedingly above anything I could ask or even imagine. I've got a pretty big imagination, but God, I confess to you that sometimes... It just shrivels for fear. It shrivels because my faith gets preoccupied with other things. And so, God, I just come to you today and ask, would you stir that up in me again? Stir up a boldness. Stir up a tenacity. Stir up a perseverance in in seeking after you, Father. In asking you boldly and reaching out in prayer. Would you stir up faith in us, Jesus, as a community? Would you stir up discernment? All of the gifts that are needed, Holy Spirit, we are ready to receive them from you. Convict us where necessary. Bring us to places of salvation if we yet are not naming you as Lord and Savior. And pray for each one that they would come to know you and walk in obedience and faith and receive the blessed gift of salvation, of relationship with you that comes by confessing with our mouths that you are Lord, believing in our hearts that you have been raised from the dead and are seated right now at the throne. And so God, we come to you in full humility, not demanding or pulling levers, but just on our knees in repentance and faith, saying, God, we believe. Help our areas of unbelief. Strengthen us. Gift us with faith. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. Let's worship together. You're free to stand or kneel or sit. You can move to the sides or the back to pray with someone that you know that's going through something, or the prayer team is available for you as well. Let's worship. Thank you.